from the Garden of Eden to the flood to the Tower of Babel to the Old Testament history to New Testament history to the entire history of the world, what you see is man running from God and God in his steadfast love pursuing man. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. If you have your Bibles, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. I think most of you know uh, that I live in my grandmother and grandfather's house. I believe I've made that clear. I think you've heard stories. Um, And when we bought the house from my grandmother, she left all her appliances in the house. And one of the things that she left in the house was, of course, her her stove. And it's it's an old coil stove, right? Not the glass top stove, but old coal stove. Now, I tried to think about how old that stove was. And, you know, we've been there 14 years. Yeah, 14th anniversary for me at Red Bank coming up in a couple of years or a couple of weeks. Uh, thank you all uh, for having me for so long. But I digress. The stove is at least 14 years old. And, and I remember vaguely when they remodeled the kitchen. Y'all remember the 70s uh, green colored appliances? Yeah, they had those. And I remember when that went, and they, they went to the cream color. The I think it's called biscuit, whatever. It's in a southern house that's made many biscuits. I'll go with biscuit color, right? But when we were there, shortly after we were there, one of the burners started acting up, and so I went to a local appliance place just to see how much a burner was, a switch was, and also to inquire whether or not I should replace that with a newer stove because I, I'm thinking that thing is at least 25 years old. And the appliance guy looked at me and said, no, 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 no. He's like, whatever you do, just, just fix it. Buy a new part, you know, put the new part on it. Now I have a background in electrician and, and fixing appliances, so putting on a new thermostat is not a big deal. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And since then, I've added another thermostat and, a, you know, another burner here and there. Not, not much in the 14 years. But the, his reasoning was, and tell me if you can relate to this, they just don't make them like they used to. Right. Everybody's not. Uh huh. Uh huh. And, and you can you, you see that around in our lives, either where they're just because they don't or because they're designed not to last as as long in, anymore. It, it's amazing. Planned obsolescence to force you to buy something uh, every time something new comes out. You know, I, I told you they just had an Apple event last week. And if I had an extra a lot of money, I would just go go on a shopping spree. Right, but we're kind of trained now. It seems that way. They 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 just don't make them like they used to. We we think, and in many cases, rightly so. The old is much better than the new. Well, when we come to Jeremiah thirty-one, God is actually going to flip that on us, and what He's going to say is the old was good, but there's something new coming that is even better than the old. You see how he's going to force us to think differently than what we're used to thinking and what we see in our lives normally. 
So Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 40 is on the new covenant. And this morning, it, this is going to probably take one, maybe two, two, three weeks to get to the end of this. And it was I thought about it last week as we had the Lord's Supper. To go back and look, we talk about the new covenant, but there's so much more to it than what we talk about. And I thought, let's, let's examine that. And as I got to start studying, I thought, you know what? We can't really examine the new covenant and understand the entirety of it until we look at the old covenant. So this morning, we're going to read Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through about 38, and look at the old covenant to get a firm foundation this morning of, of the old covenant so that when we look at the new covenant in the weeks ahead, we can understand the magnitude of how much better it really, really is. But this is what the prophet Jeremiah writes in verse 31, and I'm going to read down to verse 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The promise in Jeremiah 31 that you are probably familiar with and you have heard is the promise of the new covenant. Now, as we stop and we think about this, and I, I laughed this morning in Sunday school because we talked about covenants, and I'm always amazed sometimes how God just puts things together. God, when you look through His Word, has dealt with His people through covenants. That is how God operates and deals with His people. Now, a covenant is, is not really a word that we use anymore today. It's, we will most likely use a word like a contract, which is, is very similar, where two people come together and agree to all the terms and the conditions, right? I mean, everything now comes with terms and conditions. Well, when you check that little box that you agree with the terms and the conditions, you have entered into a contract. You have said, I will do this, and they have said, I will do that. And we see it, everything. And it's, it's not just when you buy a car or buy a house. It's when they put up new user agreements on your cell phone. When you, you check out uh, something or you, you sign up to, to get emails, you agree to the terms and conditions. We, we enter into a lot more contracts than we probably really understand that, that we do. And so a covenant is basically a contract. But the biblical covenant is very, very, very different. And it's different in this respect, that the two parties are not equal. Because on the one hand, you have the all-powerful, eternal, creator God of the universe as one party, and the other party is temporal, weak, created man. There is a decided power imbalance in that contract. Would you not agree? We, we read about God's greatness 
this morning. I mean, we can dig a hole, but we can't dig a valley. So we're, we're entering into a contract, into this covenant, where we are not the ones in power. And I bring that up because it actually makes God acting through covenants even more amazing. Because what it is telling us is that through the covenants, God, who is all-powerful, is obligating Himself to fulfill certain terms of the covenant for our benefit. Because when we come to God, or you go back and you look at the covenants, you look at Noah, you look at Abraham, you look at Moses, David, and you see this pattern where God is obligating Himself that He's going to do something that will benefit the recipient of the covenant, but nowhere in there does the other person say, well, God, I'm going to do this so that you will benefit because we don't have the power to do that. Now, there's terms and conditions that we'll get to. But isn't it amazing that God says, I want to operate and I want to deal with you through a covenant where I'm going to do, I'm going to come up with the terms, I'm going to come up with the conditions, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to obligate myself to do that, not for my good, but for your good. It's pretty amazing to think that He will do that. And as you go through this passage here in Jeremiah, you see that. How many times, look at verse 31, at the end, kind of in the middle, he says, I will make. Then he goes down in verse 33, I will make. And he says it again, I will put, I will be. Each one of those statements is God obligating himself for the good of the person on the other side of the covenant. He is promising to act in a particular manner towards his people. And in this particular passage, he says there's coming a new time where I'm going to operate within the context of a new covenant that's going to have new, by definition, uh, uh, benefits for you. He says there's coming a time when that's going to happen. Well, that kind of led me to think of some questions. And this morning, as we examine the Old Covenant, we're going to do it through a series, series of questions. And the first one is this, and the question is just simply, well, what covenant is being replaced? If, if there's going to be a new covenant, just by common usage of words, that means that there is what? An old covenant, right? New exists only because there's old. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. So what is the Old Covenant? Well, he tells us in verse 32. He says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So that tells us exactly what to do. It tells us that we can go back to Exodus 19. And you can jot this down or you can turn here, or if you check out the study guides on Saturday, you will see all these Bible verses. We can go back to Exodus 19. This is them. They have come up out of the land of Egypt. They are at Mount Sinai. And it says in verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out for Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. 
The Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all peoples. From all the earth, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here it is. There's the covenant. Where God is saying, here is the covenant I am going to make with you. Go tell the people. And he does. He goes down and he tells the people. And in verse 8, they answer to him and says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God says to Moses on Mount Sinai, I'm giving you a covenant. Go tell the people. He tells the people. The people say, we're going to do it. Moses goes back up and says, God, they said yes. And Moses stays up on the mountain. And what happens in Exodus 19 and following to about Exodus 34 is God giving the covenant. Now, it is called the Mosaic Covenant, but please, there's a, a little bit of a distinction between the terminology when we say the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant was made with Abraham for Abraham and his descendants. The Mosaic Covenant is really given through Moses for all the people of Israel, but for shorthand, it's just simpler to call it the Mosaic Covenant. And so for all those chapters, beginning in chapter 20, where it starts with the Ten Commandments, God outlines the covenant in very specific details. He tells them what to do. Every aspect of their life, whether it is civil, just you know how they deal in the world, where it is ceremonial, how they deal in their worship, where it is moral, what God expects them internally to do, God outlines the covenant. There is not an aspect of the Old, Co- Old Testament covenant that they are not bound to. Every part of their life, every, every part, I, I can't overstate this enough, every part of their life, entering into that covenant with God, was governed in some sense. They lived their life under that covenant. Very much like us when we talk about living our entire life to Christ. There's not a part of our life to to Christ that we say, we're going to live like it over here, but this part over here is out of bounds. There's no out of bounds for us as we live for Christ. There was no out of bounds for the people as they lived under the old covenant covenant under the mosaic covenant and god describes to them this is what you're going to do this is the reward if you don't do this this is the punishment so the old testament the mosaic covenant was conditional they had obligations to fulfill right i mean you see it when god is talking to him says if they obey there there's the condition If you obey and if you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured people. Now, God's going to bless them tremendously. However, they have to keep it. They have to follow the laws. If the sacrifice, and we'll just talk about it in the context, because when we think about the old covenant, we think of the sacrifices. If the sacrifice says, and they didn't have the Julian calendar, so please understand. But if the sacrifice says on November 7th, 
you grab a sheep, and at 11 o'clock, you make the sacrifice in this prescriptive manner, then November 7th, they had to do that in that specific way to obey and fulfill and keep the conditions of the covenant. There was no derivation. That's what they had to do. It was a very externally focused, conditional covenant. And God says, that's the one that's going to be replaced. Which leads me to the next question. Why? Why does it need to be replaced? Look down in verse 32 again. God makes it very clear. All right, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Not like the covenant, you know, that I brought with you out of the land of Egypt. Then at the end of the verse, end of verse 32, it says, My covenant that they broke. My covenant that they broke. Conditional aspect of the covenant. God said, I'm going to do this. You have to do this. And what we find out is they didn't do it. They did not obey the covenant. They broke it. They didn't get to experience all the blessings of it by keeping it. They, they were disobedient. And you want to see something that's just really, you know, again, you don't have to turn there, but back in Exodus 19, right? God says to Moses, here, tell them, the people respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything that they do, everything. I, I will do this. And I love it. Moses goes up and he even says, he reported the words of the people to the Lord, which, again, I find funny. I mean, the Lord heard them and knew, but Moses goes back up. God, you sent me down. I'm coming back up. Here it is. You know how long they kept the covenant? Like maybe to the time that Moses got back up to the top of the mountain. Right? They couldn't keep the covenant that, that soon. Now, I, yeah, you're going to go, but Gary, they didn't have everything. yet. You're right. They didn't have it. Moses has not come down yet. But Moses goes up, right? And he's up there for a, for a while. And do you know what happens in Exodus 32? Exodus 32, the people come to Aaron and go, um, that guy Moses, he's been up there for a while. We don't know what's happening to him. Can, can, can you make us a, a, a God who shall go before us, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Here is God saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm bringing you out of the land. And here are the people going, we'll obey. Hey, Aaron, will you make us a God? And Aaron says, sure. Right? You, you know the story. You, or at least you've seen the movie, Ten Commandments, right? Aaron goes around and he gets all the gold jewelry and he mel melts it down and everything. I went back and I watched that scene. Because I was curious. I couldn't remember how they do it. If y'all have seen it, they make a really huge golden cow. I mean, big which I had to laugh because there wouldn't have been that much gold and jewelry to make a calf that big. But secondly, if they had, they couldn't carry it. And in the movie, they had 10 people carrying the prop, and one guy, either it was really heavy or this one guy was really selling it, supposed to be heavy, because he grunted the entire time while they were praying around the camp with that. You ought to go back and watch the scene. It's really kind of funny. But the whole point is, that's as far as they got. <laughs> They're not setting themselves up for success. And so when you go back and, and you look through here, the day that they're supposed to give it, a couple days later, they're breaking the covenant. 
They're already worshiping false gods. They're already creating idols. They're already creating images saying, you're going to be our God that we created with our hands, but you're going to be our God. We're going to worship you even though we created you. Where the Creator, God, has brought them up out of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and saying, I will bless you and give you the rules and the covenant by which you are to live. Just obey me. Just, just obey me. But they broke it. But you know what God does? He gives it again. You know what they do? They break it again. Guess what God did? He reinstates it. You know what they do? They break it again. You go back and forth and you read the Old Testament and you quickly see that the Old Testament is not one that is defined by covenant fidelity. It is defined by immorality, by idolatry, by false worship, by, by mingling with pagan cultures. It is one where they basically said, you've met these people, hey, don't do this. And they go, okay, I'm going to do that. I, I, I mean, that, that looks like what happens in the Old Testament. And Jeremiah says, look, they have broke my covenant. They can't keep it. It's not that they don't, which is part of it, but they can't. They are incapable. They demonstrate they are incapable of keeping it. And as Jeremiah is uh, reporting the words of the Lord, he says, my covenant that they broke, and then he says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Notice as Jeremiah is writing this that they are using the covenantal name. It is Lord. It is Yahweh. Revealing that personal intimacy that they have. And Jeremiah puts it in terms of a marriage contract. The most intimate relationship that someone can have. And their sins and breaking the covenant is it, just so egregious. They are committing adultery on the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6 through 9, talks about this. Actually, all of Jeremiah 2 and then Jeremiah 3. As soon as I get there, Jeremiah wrote a lot. Um, but this is what it says. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one, Israel? How she went up every high hill, and every high hill is a place of worship. That's where the high places were, where the false pagan temples and altars were placed. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. What are they doing? They're doing the same thing that they did at the base of Mount Sinai. They're doing what some of us do today. We look around in the world and we see a different God that we like better. And we want to run out. And as God says here, I'm going to use the older version, plays the harlot. Goes out and plays the harlot, plays foots. He commits spiritual adultery with other gods, cheating 
on the God who brought them up out of Egypt, who gave them the covenant, who said, I was their husband. I was going to take care of them. I was going to provide for them. I was going to bless them. They didn't want that. Instead, they found another God that they wanted. I mean, I mean, we see that even today, right? We see all these tempting, shiny gods that, that, that we want. And we want to go out and play the harlot with them. You see, we can't keep the covenant. Israel couldn't keep the covenant. They were covenant breakers. Even though God's law was perfect, they could not keep it. They absolutely could not. And you may think, well, you know, that, that seems kind of difficult. What, what's the punishment? Well, the punishment is that God has divorced them. God divorced them. He broke up with them. So at that point, God's not going to give the covenant again. He doesn't reinstate the covenant. Which is probably what everybody is expecting them to do. It's what the people of Israel would expect. He's going to reinstate the covenant. And he doesn't. So the people cry out. They think it's not fair. Look at verse 29. He quotes the old proverb, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And the point that they're trying to make is the people now who are going to be carried out are going, wait a minute, it wasn't my fault. Don't punish me for what our parents did. And Jeremiah clears it up really quickly in verse 30. He says, no, 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 you're dying for your own iniquity. You're, you're, you're dying for your own sin. The same is true today. We don't die and we're not eternally separated from God from, because of a sin that somebody else committed. We're, we're, it, it's because we committed the sin. We committed iniquity. We don't like to think about that. It's easier, especially today, right? Everything today is blame somebody else. Uh, it, it, it's not my fault. It's somebody else. And God says, no, no, no. The punishment is because you sinned. And at this point, it's over. I'm done with you committing adultery. We're divorced. So you might think, well, why did God give the covenant in the first place? If they're not able to keep it, it doesn't really seem fair. And I would agree with that. However, God didn't expect them, and the condition was not for them to be perfectly sinless. That, that was not the requirement. The requirement was to obey God and keep His, His covenant. Simply stated, it was for them to love God with their whole heart, mind, and soul. When you go back and you look at it, I mean, think about it. If the covenant demanded sinless perfection, why then did God give commands that if they sin, what they were supposed to do to make restitution for their sin? Right? One act of sin did not cut them off from the covenant. There was prescriptive measures to take care of that sin. I mean, God, in His grace, built it into the covenant because He knew that they couldn't keep it. 
But he says, look, if you obey me and, 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 you, and, and you love me, then I'm going to show steadfast love to you for thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You want to enjoy all the blessings of the covenant? All you have to do is love me. Trust me. Trust me that I'm taking you into the land, right? How'd that work for them? They get to the land, they do a U-turn because they didn't trust him. So God is extending to them in this covenant, in the old covenant, grace to his people. I mean, it really is. We don't think of it in terms of a grace-filled covenant, but it is. Because he says, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, that he will forgive the iniquity and the transgressions and their sins. He, he gave it to them as a way that God could demonstrate his grace towards them. Right? If you do this, then I'm going to bless you. If you love me and if you trust me, then I will pour my blessings out on you and I will show you grace and mercy. God gave them that external mechanism so that they could benefit from that. But he also gave them the old covenant so that they would be ready when the Messiah came. So that they would be ready when, as Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So that when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, steps on this earth, they would recognize him and understand, as it says in Galatians 3, 24 through 26, that the law was just a guardian until Christ came so that they might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The old covenant put them in a position of grace, looking forward to the point where Christ came and the fullness of God's grace was manifest through Christ and His sacrifice. It was both... A, a, we talked about this this morning, worship, looking forward. It was a forward-looking covenant to something better that would come. But until the better came, it kept them in grace because they were going to be obedient to God's commands. He was preparing them. So what does God do? Well, in verse 31, it tells us. He's making a new covenant. He's making a new covenant. He's not going to reinstate the old Right? He divorced them. They're done. It's conditional. They broke it. He says, I've divorced you. You flayed the harlot. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And again, what do you see? You see God taking the initiative. From the Garden of Eden to the flood, to the Tower of Babel, to the Old Testament history, to New Testament history, to the entire history of the world, what you see is man running from God and God in His steadfast love pursuing man. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Who hid from who? Adam and Eve hid from God. Who pursued who? God walks in and says, where are you? And that's the story. That's, that's the history of, of a God who pursues us and does not leave us alone to our own self-destructive, sinful, death-causing sins. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't leave you alone in that. 
God pursues you and wants you to be pulled out and pull you out of that. Because as we saw a few weeks ago, we're not made for the valleys, we're made for the mountaintops. It's, it's about a God who wants the best for you, about a God of, of, of new beginnings, a God who has promised to work all things together for good for those who love Him or are called according to His name. And so since Israel could not obey the commands of Moses, and make no mistake, we wouldn't do any better. All right, we love to play that game, right? Well, if that was me, how many times have we said, if I was Peter, I wouldn't, yeah, right. All right, we might have aimed better than Peter when we grabbed the sword, but we would have grabbed the sword. We couldn't keep it either. There would be no way. The Mosaic law was still in command today. Two things. One, you wouldn't be able to keep it. Two, I wouldn't be a priest because I couldn't do the animals. Right? So look at what God does. He says, Israel can't keep it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step in and I'm going to make the ability to keep the covenant based on what I do. Not on what you do. Isn't that amazing? That in the new covenant, he says, I will make a new covenant. He says that, that I will put the law within them. Let's go turn from external to internal. I will write it on their hearts instead of on stone tablets. I will be their God and they will be my people. So no longer is an external conditional covenant. It's going to be an internal unconditional covenant fulfilled by God who enters into it with us. And what did we bring to the table? Absolutely nothing. But because God is a steadfast loving God, He stepped in and did what we could not do. That is the story of the new covenant. God doing what we did not have the ability to do. It is the story of a God coming down to His people who, though He was in the form of God, did not, consider, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It is the story of God lifting his people up, but God in his rich mercy, because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Why does He give the new covenant? And the answer is because He is a God of steadfast love who pursues us, who came down to do what we could not do so that for all eternity He could shower the immeasurable riches of His grace in us towards Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? 
Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.